Michael Spears, and I am a career missionary at Tenwick Hospital in Kenya. And this is uh, Dr. Agneta Odera, and she is one of our surgery residents at Tenwick. And we just want to share a little bit with you this morning of our experiences of uh, trying to start a general surgery training program and how that has worked at a mission hospital when you're outside of a university setting. There are some unusual challenges, and I'd uh, like to talk through some of what we have learned and um, some of the challenges that we're still facing, and then really just have some discussion around uh, what you have maybe experienced that may be different from our, our experiences, um, let you ask questions, interrupt us at any time. We'll try to repeat it so that everyone can hear the question going to encourage uh, Agneta to, to kind of jump in here with me and, and offer some perspectives from the Kenyan side as to what she's seen and experienced both, uh, hopefully, as our future colleague. We hope she's going to finish her training and come and, and be a faculty there with us at Tenwick, but right now as a resident, what she's seeing. So challenges, obstacles, and blessings for residency training in a mission hospital setting. Uh, so I've just reviewed some of those objectives. This is our aerial view of our campus at Tenwick. We're about a 100-acre campus, and uh, many of the people that live and work at Tenwick also live there. They may have a rural home, but they will live there because it's difficult to commute in our setting. So we have not only the hospital buildings but uh, many other uh, training schools and then homes there on our campus. We're a 300-bed hospital. We, we offer all of the primary care um, uh, services as well as surgical services. We serve an area that we think is roughly 800,000 to 1 million people in our catchment area. For surgery, we're a referral center for 8 to 10 million people, so a much bigger area. And then we see a lot of esophageal cancer in our area. And Dr. Russ White, my colleague, has earned quite a reputation far and near. So we have people coming from all over East Africa for esophageal cancer. Usually we have about 12,000 inpatient admissions that may be even higher than that this year, and usually about 100,000 um, outpatient visits, more than 5,000 surgeries and 1,200 endoscopies. We have about 500 Kenyan staff, and we are able to have those staff be Christian. We are a Christian mission hospital, and as we say that and, and carry that forward, we're able to um, hire Christians to work in our hospital. Our motto is, we treat Jesus heals, and we see that lived out over and over again. There are 10 plus, I say plus because many of us are either going and coming, some are on furlough, some are there as uh, post-residency people who are there with us for two years, um, others, but about 10 or so that are, are career missionaries there for the long haul. And about 100, I think last year they told me 127 visiting doctors at Tenwick. The problem in Africa, as you I'm sure know, is that there are not enough doctors. And there are not enough doctors to train other doctors. And as um, over the, the course of years they've looked at trying to 
have Africans be trained. They've looked at a lot of different solutions, having them go outside of Africa for training. And sometimes that works well and sometimes it doesn't. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But 30 African countries have fewer than 10 doctors per million people. And so it's pretty significant, the need for physicians in Africa. Dr. David Thompson, as many of you know, um, saw and lived this as he's worked in Gabon for many years. And God put on his heart the vision for the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. He felt the need to leave a legacy as he was working and, and working hard, doing a good work there in Gabon, but thought, wow, what's going to be here after I leave? And God gave him this vision for training Africans in Africa. And uh, he got together at the Brackenhurst Conference one year, about 15 years ago now, um, with 20 other uh, doctors who were there, and they started brainstorming, and really PAX was born. It's a rural-based health initiative really looking at a way across Africa and even into Bangladesh now to have missionary doctors and mission hospitals and, and the national doctors in these countries work together with support from the West, support from America, to put together curriculum and a structure to have a residency program that's patterned after our Western residencies to train doctors who are credentialed in their countries to be surgeons. And it utilizes mission hospitals to train physicians. And it's very clear and very clearly Christian in its structure. And the goal is to return these trained surgeons to the resource-poor rural environments. And there's a, a bonding-type process we'll talk about in a moment that after the time of training, the, there's a payback. For this training period, you're obligated to then pay back some of that time um, commitment to a place of service. Um, PACS for many years was a dream, and it kind of um, smoldered a while, trying to become something that now God seems to be really, truly blessing, and we've seen a lot of growth in the last few years, uh, new residency programs that have opened. Uh, Kenya now has two programs with Tenwick Hospital and Kajabi being the two that I'm most familiar with that are in Kenya. These are our colleagues, and even today, they are over meeting, having uh, their, their council meeting. Um, these guys are, they're taking time out of pretty important jobs. They're chairman of surgeries, they're hospital administrators, they're uh, program directors, people who have jobs in this field here in America who are committed to PACs, and they take time out to meet several times a year as our council to advise us and to work on this um, program. Why don't you talk a little bit about, about this conference that we had a couple years ago. So this was a conference that was organized by PACS for basic uh, science training. Uh, we get the first year and the second years and we meet together. Uh, this was held at Brackenhurst in Kenya near Nairobi. Um, and we just meet for two weeks. We have different faculty. Some of them fly from the states, um, plus those who are in training in different countries of Africa. And we just have a two-week session where it's pretty brilliant and intense, but we 
learn a lot about basic uh, surgical skills training, um, ATLS, SCLS, um, and we also do a lot of networking, and it was a really neat time just to see, because as she has mentioned, this is a new thing, and it's a growing program, and it was really good to see what God was doing in other places and other countries, and to learn about the challenges that they were experiencing, and to see the blessings. Um, and so this, you can see it has really grown, and we are a big number of residents, um, and it was really good time. I think it probably surprised all of us to see, when we were all together, um, how many of us were a part of PACS. When I went to Tinwick in 2007, in January, it, it seemed to be that the time was right to, to put all of this together. Tinwick had been doing family medicine training program, but Tinwick's mission is three-pronged, Christ-centered health care, spiritual ministry, and training for service. And so as we saw Tinwick was doing nursing training, they were providing the nursing nurses for the hospital. About 85% of the nurses at Tinwick get trained at Tinwick. They were doing chaplaincy training and providing chaplains not only for our hospital but for the general area of Kenya. And we were doing internship training for uh, since 1995, the way the medical school works in Kenya after high school, based on your, what's it called, the high school graduation exam, the national exam, based on those scores, you are chosen for medical school, and you go straight into that for five years. After graduating from medical school, there's a required one year of internship, and that's three months of OBGYN, pediatrics, medicine, and surgery. That may be all of the training that many doctors in Kenya ever receive. There's not enough residency slots for many of them to go on and receive post-internship training, postgraduate training. And so we had been doing this internship training. It's really quite a blessing. We're up to 16 interns a year now that we train. In 2005, we had started doing family medicine residency training at Tenwick. And so we were used to that. We, we are committed to that. We have a lot of visiting doctors that help us in doing the conferences and the didactic portion of the training as well as with rounds and surgical procedures and things that it's important for these residents to experience. You know the old adage, give a man a fish and he can fish for a day. Teach a man to fish and he can fish for a lifetime. And we, we really felt like perhaps the time is right for us to look at doing, in an academic manner, residency training at Tenwick. So with January 2008, with uh, Dr. O'Dara, as well as another colleague, were our first two residents to start our program at Tenwick. And each year since then, in January, we have accepted two more residents. So January 2009, we accepted two more. In January 2010, we accepted two more. And we currently um, have six residents. We've had some turnover. They're not exactly the same. We, uh, we do partner with an organization called COSEXA. Um, it's the College of Surgeons of Eastern, Central, and Southern Africa. And this is the organization that allows our graduates to be recognized as surgeons when they graduate. Since we are not a university program, uh, COSEXA is sort of the credentialing organization. 
because Sexa is still working with the Ministry of Health in Kenya, working to get the ministry to give them that final stamp of approval. Um, Agneta and her colleagues will periodically ask me, you know, where's that that letter that I could put in my file that says, in fact, I am going to be a recognized surgeon when I graduate. And we don't have that final I dotted and T crossed yet. We hope that we will soon. Out of nine countries, Kenya's the only one that doesn't have that all the way clarified. So we believe it's coming. We've got sort of the verbal approval of the Ministry of Health in Kenya, but there's a few other things that they are still working through to get that. You can pray for us for that. That's something that's very important for that accreditation and credentialing issue to be resolved. But, so we're partnering in two ways. We have to work with COSEXA from the government Ministry of Health perspective, and we have to work with PACS. We choose to work with PACS because we want to, from the setting our standards high, having our curriculum, from the Christian perspective, um, all of the things that PACS has to offer. So from TINWIC, we have two partners. All right, let's talk about some of the issues with trying to do residency training in Kenya? So one of the, the most obvious um, points that we notice is that if you try and send one of the doctors from, say, Kenya, if, I send, if I'm sent out abroad for training, uh, most of the time when they go out there, they get trained, and, you know, things really look good, things seem to work, systems are in place, and it's very tempting to stay I personally deliberated a lot about that when I was deciding where to go. I had checked out UAB, Cincinnati Children's Hospital. I'm interested in pediatrics. And, and so, you know, I, they're really good places, but many of us don't come back. Um, from my class that graduated, we were 250 students. Um, Three-quarters of us quit from government um, places, so the government hospitals are not run by doctors. They're run by very few medical officers or clinical officers, which is equivalent to a physician attendant, and most of them just stay abroad. Or they come here and the culture shock is too much, they just can't handle the stress, the pace of life is different, and they fail. And it's, it's very expensive to train a doctor abroad. Um, the, the other things that we see that are there um, outside of a university setting is when a program is started within the mission hospital, um, especially if the, the, one of the missions of the hospital was, was not huge on training, it often interferes with the day-to-day -day running of the hospital. Um, most of the time there is no funding available. Um, there is no enough leadership to train the residents. Um, if you don't have enough faculty, we've seen we have about 10 plus missionary doctors on campus at any time. Um, but we really rely on having nationals who are willing to come in and also train. And at times when, you know, the doctors, the missionary doctor has to leave to go on file, uh, something happens and they're called back home, and suddenly the program that was up and running is, is lacking in, in training people. So that can be a problem. And then also the culture of medicine in most um, African setups is very different um, from what you'll see here. Um, what you know as a typical small thyroid may be huge. You know, sometimes you're doing a thyroidectomy and I'm like, are we doing a thyroidectomy or are we doing a mastectomy? You know, things are just blown out of proportion. Um, so there is a lot more that, that the missionaries have to learn even when they come there. They feel, <laughs> I, I guess they feel like they're in their own mm -hmm. training again. Um, so it can be a little sure. bit challenging. Um, then we don't have a lot of ancillary services support. Um, 
you know, most hospitals are not equipped with good x-ray facilities, good labs, so you sort of learn what the state of, art of medicine is, but you may not get to practice that. Um, and it can really get overwhelming and frustrating. I think one other point on that, that, you know, if your administration in your hospital is not behind what you're trying to do a thousand percent, it's difficult because they're going to see that trying to train is going to take you away from some of the other tasks that you're doing. It definitely takes time. It perhaps slows down patient care initially when you're bringing someone along and you're trying to have residents and all. Ultimately, they'll see a huge benefit in it, and they'll recognize all of the additional services that you're providing and the additional numbers of patients that you can see and things like that. But if your administration is not supportive in the early days, that can be a detriment to getting a program like this up and going. Um, as you want to recruit program directors and assistant program directors and then consultants, as we call them in Kenya, or, or attendings to teach in your program, you have to have a certain critical mass to make it worthwhile. It's hard if you're the only guy. It's kind of an apprenticeship. If, some, if you're just one person trying to train someone uh, in a residency program. So to really make it a, a more vigorous thing. And in PACS now, we've said we really would like for there to be two, both a program director and an assistant program director, so that there's at least um, some, some relief for you, for one, if, if one person has to be away. And there's um, multiple perspectives and, and talents that are there to help train these residents. You do need a curriculum that's broad. In general surgery in America, you don't do C-sections and GYN surgery and a little bit of uh, neurosurgery with burr holes and uh, depressed skull fracture elevation and ENT and all of those things. But in general surgery and orthopedics and open fractures and all, but general surgery in most developing countries is going to include all of that. And so as a general surgeon who arrives fresh out of training on the field, you are very often, depending on your your resident who's fresh out of internship, they can they can do a C-section with their eyes closed, you know, and you're going, wow, can you show me how to do that? And that's something you, you in tropical medicine and all of the things that they're very used to that are brand new to you, you know, that's that's something that as you're planning your curriculum and looking at what skill set you need, um, Important. There are several places now that are looking at doing a fellowship for missionary surgeons, at least, who are interested in going to the field, and that are letting you rotate through things like urology and orthopedics and perhaps ENT and neurosurgery to get some of those basic trainings before you ever leave for the field. And then assuring that your graduates are going to be able to be recognized as surgeons is, is a difficult task and one that we're still working through in Kenya. I think this actually spills over to the next point here. Um, working with our Ministry of Health anyway is, uh, is interesting. Uh, you can go one day and you need uh, Form 1031 
Oh, no, no, no. You, you, you need to complete 1031. You go away and complete it and, and fill this out and bring it back. And, you know, you, you come back the next day and you've filled out 1031 and you've attached all of the attachments. And, and, and then it's, oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's 1035. You didn't need 1031. You need 1035. And, you know, this kind of thing goes on and on and on and on. The rules seem to change. They seem to be... Um, on a whim, there seems to be nothing in writing. There seems to be, you know, an endless um, array of things that are needed, and and you're not really quite sure what they're after. You think you might know, and it might look something like this, um, which of course you don't want to to do. You don't want to pay bribes. You don't want to do those kinds of things to get the approvals that you need. And that can make it difficult when you're trying to get your your board certification. You're needing to get your accreditations. Um, there are certain visits and and site visits and accreditations. Those kinds of things can happen as well. Those typically go fairly well, uh, at least in our setting. They have gone fairly well. It's more those visits downtown to the actual ministry that have been more difficult. Any any comments on that from? Any of you who've worked in that setting? Well, it, it, it's a class of cultures in a way because the, you know, having worked in Kenya on the family medicine side, the, the accreditations come through the medical practitioner dentist board, and and their their requirements are established in law that says you have to have this uh, uh, master of medicine degree, and that's the way their law reads. So they're kind of in a bind. Uh, they can't approve something that doesn't have a Master of Medicine, you know, accreditation because that's what the law says, and yet they know you're doing good work. So their office is in a bind, uh, and they, they can't really get out of the bind without a change in the law is the perspective I see for the accreditation issues that you're facing. Um, and and there's, there's no good way out uh, on their side either. Uh, and so it, it's going to be one of those longer protracted things because of that, I think. Yeah, that's that's um, that's drawn out, and so I think we're. It's difficult as an outsider sometimes to truly understand how to navigate some of their systems. Um, it's true. It's sometimes difficult to know who the true authorities are and where the true um, decision makers are. We are trying to work through the Cosexa personnel, so we in. As our program, it's not us doing the negotiation. We are trying to work through our country director on the COSEXA board and let them go to the meetings. If they want us to attend with them, we're certainly there and willing and welcome. But um, we have not so far been a part of those actual negotiations. So... And then one thing that's been a personal struggle for me and, and, and continues to be, and again, I, I welcome any insight from any of you, but determining a quality standard. You know, what do you set as the quality standard for your residents that you want to set for them, that you want to teach them, that you want to um, have them aspire to? And then what do you want to accept as realistic and acceptable in that setting? Because truthfully, I started out at a point of saying, here's the bar, and I'm not going to accept anything but this bar. And then, you know what, I'm in a mode of always getting onto them. And that's not a great place to be 
You know, you want to be able to infer, affirm and encourage and, and, you know, say good job and those kinds of things. And that's hard to do if your standard is set too high. And so trying to, to teach, we, we always teach state-of-the-art care. And even in any of our lectures or conferences or things, we say that this is standard of care. If you were somewhere where you had access to everything, this is what you would do. At Tenwick, here's what we have available. Here's what we do. That's, that's how our teaching goes. But then there's the actual patient care part of it and, and trying to learn the right mode there of, um, you know, what's, what's acceptable. Certainly we, we want excellent care. What does excellent look like? In Africa. I have a question. Are, are you meaning in so far as what resources you have available that you might not be able to like do something, a, a procedure because of lack of resources, or are you talking more of the cultural? More, more the cultural and and um, the pace which with things happen. Um, you can't check hematocrits every four hours in our setting. But then should that mean you don't check for 24 whole hours? You know, how, how aggressive are you in resuscitations? I, I think to comment on that also, in Africa, I mean, resources are limited. And people do not have the financial capabilities they do here. They don't have insurance. And you sort of have to learn um, when you're ordering for tests or you're making decisions in, in patient care, if it's not going to really affect your management, then don't do it. Um, if there are other ways that you can learn to monitor the patient um, and guide your decision making, you know, if someone has a, a, a patient with trauma who comes in and has um, a hemoperitoneum on your past but he's stable, you know, you can't do several labs, you can't send them for a CT scan, you think you may have a liver lack or a spleen lack but they're stable. You know, you have to develop creative ways to monitor them. And so, it just makes me look back and think about, you know, the olden days when our great-grandfathers in medicine didn't have all these fancy tests, but they really did take care of, of patients. Granted, there was a lot of mortality and mobility, but they did do it. And so, it's, you know, that's the situation that we're in. Yes, question. What assumptions do you make when you're trying to establish standards of care? Do you assume that the American way is the standard and the best, or do you assume that perhaps the Kenyan way is really the best, and you determine maybe ways to do things better than done in America? What, what assumptions do we make as far as standard of care? Um, I, I think we're probably guilty of using the American way as a standard. Right now we teach to the Swartz surgery textbook when we're looking at um, what our didactic surgery um, teaching comes from. When we when we talk about things, however, that are our protocols for our hospital, we have certain things that we have adapted for Tenwick. For example, if a patient needs to be put on a ventilator, we've asked all of our visiting staff to not make that decision without the involvement of a long-term doctor at Tenwick. Because of the many implications that, are, that go into that that are different than they are in America. And so we, 
we just want to be there with that physician as they're making that determination um, to help walk them through that process. And, and what we do in our setting, if that patient is likely uh, suffering from something that they can go on a ventilator, be treated and recover from in, in a definable amount of time that's reasonable to expect that they're going to you know, be on that vent three days, four days a week and, and get off and recover, and we think this is a reasonable thing, then that's, a, that's something we do. If that's not going to happen, then we have a lot more discussion about it with the family, with the patient's family, with the medical team before we make that decision. It's a difficult place to be. It's not ever something we have to do in the U.S. You, you feel initially, when you go to, to Tenwick, you feel initially like, this is beyond what I'm comfortable with as a healthcare provider. I'm making a decision that goes beyond what I have to do in the U.S. I think just to add on that, um, you know, like Kenya was British colonized, so we learned a lot of British system of things. Um, but in Tenwick, when I went there, there's a lot of American culture of things. Um, you know, what you call a CBC for your complete blood count is a full hemogram in, in, in England. So things are very different. And so what we hope to do is to create a, a fusion, take the best thing of American culture of medicine, take the best aspects of Kenyan culture of medicine, and sort of create something new that is, is good and workable in that environment. Some of the other challenges that you will likely run into is the funding. You know, how, where, where are you going to fund your residency? How do you raise money for the salaries? How do you raise money to build housing units for where the residents are going to live? Um, the program operational expenses for conferences and meals and textbooks and um, Internet access for your residents and things like that. There's certain operational expenses, and so finding creative ways to to support that program financially is a challenge. Um, being able to effectively utilize your visiting staff, we could not do it at Tenwick without our visiting doctors. They are they are just a tremendous blessing, and we're so thankful for any of you who've come and any of you who will be yet to come. Um, but at the same time, it, it creates a flux. There's, there's a constant in and out, and it's, it's a little bit of instability that is created with that. And so you want to have assurance to your residents that, that there's a core group of you who are there to stay. You want them to know, I'm in this for the long haul. I, I, I'm, I'm here to see this residency program be successful. And I know that that's a 10, 15-year, 20-year commitment. I, I'm going to be here to be with you through this process. And I think that gives them some assurance that that's going to, um, you know, that that's some stability to the program. And then I'll let you talk about recruiting residents. So, um it's been a challenge finding residents to recruit, especially into these uh, packed setups. Most of these mission hospitals are, are built in um, the rural areas um, where, as we've said, resources are limited, there is no good um, transport network, and, and most residents um, desire some higher level of training that is um, you know, approved and credited, and most people, as I've said, are leaving the country there 
the brain drain in Africa continues to be a huge problem, yet the need for good health care also continues to grow. Um, and so most residents, if they want to go into a training program, they will want to stay near the big cities, like in Kenya, that's in Nairobi, um, and in Eldoret or Mombasa. Um, and even after they finish their training, that is where they want to practice. So the big area where the, the need for healthcare is, is, is massive, um, there are not enough doctors reaching those patients. And so the, the big thing has been to find attractive ways um, to make the program attractive for residents, attractive ways to re, um, recruit residents who will come and stay in the program and finish the program and even desire to be part of faculty and continue to train more residents. So our suggestions from what we've seen from what PAX has done and what has worked well for us is to have some um, well-established residency modules that, that we know work, things like teaching conferences and case conferences, um, doing an m and conference and keeping track of your morbidity and mortality. We do in-service exams annually, and this helps residents gauge their progress, and, and it helps prepare them for the MCS and FCS exams in our country, which is Member of College of Surgeons and Fellow of College of Surgeons exams that's required for their accreditation. We do daily resident rounds, and then we do consultant rounds three times a week for teaching, and we do case presentations for our residents. They're required to do 11 case presentations a year, but I think they probably end up doing more than that. Every Monday morning, two or of them or so do case presentations in our conference. We try to do journal club at least once a month. Um, we're probably a little bit behind on that, but that's our goal. Um, try to have them do a case report, a written case report, once a year. And then the picture is a skills lab where we're doing a suture workshop. And then sometimes we'll get um, pig or cow intestines and do a, an anastomosis workshop or just you know, do hands-on kinds of things where we can work together. We do also require that they keep a case log of all of their cases. And we use that to, to track some of our complications and use that report format also for our M&M. So those kinds of things that you've seen done here in the U.S. side, we're also trying to do uh, for our residency as well. We have a documented curriculum. We actually have one not only with PACS, but we have one from COSEXA. Thankfully, those two are, are blended and, and overlap, and um, we're trying to make sure that we, we teach to that. Uh, we want to utilize our short-term faculty, so while they're there, we try to make sure they give lectures in their area of expertise and that we garner as much as we can from them. We'll keep a little book of patients that we see that have a problem that's beyond our expertise, and now, thankfully, so many people in Kenya have cell phones. So we'll write their cell phone number down. If, if their type of problem is elective surgery, and we can call them, we see on our visiting staff, staff schedule the need T surgeons coming in two months, we tell them, we're going to call you to come in because during these two weeks we have a visitor coming who can help you with your problem. And that's just a real blessing when we can, can have those patients ready for that doctor when he or she arrives. We want to um, learn from other ventures that, you know, have been going on around the world. What have they done in India? What have they done in other PACS hospitals? What have they done 
in, in South America. Where are other training institutions doing good things? Let's share that word so there's um, ways to learn from each other. And then we're trying to develop relationships with the university um, physicians and other private practice physicians in our area. We have a Kenyan Medical Association, and we're trying to participate in some of their meetings. Um, we want to go and actually set up some meetings at the university and try to make some partnerships there to build some bridges and maybe have them come out and visit um, Tenwick. One way we found that's good to do that is to have some conferences, have them come. We have a really nice conference center, and we can host a conference and have them come. Um, that does a lot to build a rapport and have them know a little bit more about what you're doing, what your facility does, let you learn about what they do, uh, just make that professional connection. Any other questions or comments before we go on? Yes. Yeah, my comment will be about the last suggestion you put there about getting the Kenyan professionals involved in this program. I think that will also help with the problem you have with the accreditation because I think part of the reasons why they are delaying that is they don't see it as a Kenyan program. They see it as an American program and they will continue to delay even without any reason until sure. they see it as being owned by the Kenyan people. Sure. So if you have some of the Kenyan surgeons coming to your program to do things, training the students, they will they just need a phone call. Someone will just call somebody and say, hey, I think... It's time for us to approve this thing. We are, we are really wanting that. We had a Kenyan surgeon for a while who left to go and do urology. And he, he was a very talented um, surgeon and had you know, a little bit more of that network into the, to the Kenyan network than we were able to have. But that's a very good suggestion. I had a chance to work with Dr. Tim Pater in Afghanistan a couple of years ago mm -hmm. and a wonderful experience. One of the things we adopted in our lecture series was teaching the residents how to teach. Uh, things like adult learning principles, how to make PowerPoint slides. Because we envisioned them going to division hospitals and trying to community health workers, other physicians, and uh, they, that really went well. So. That's a, something. We, we have the same challenges and the issues that It's a great question. The question is how do we retain Kenyan national physicians to work at our mission hospital when they can go into private practice and make at least twice, if not more, the salary than Tenwick is able to pay them, and that continues to be our challenge. We, we continue to lose our national physicians after a few years. They'll come, and, and they do have a heart for the Lord, and they are committed, and then their children get older and they have school fees and it, they feel the pressures. Yeah, I, mean, I can't 
can't either. They do. They start having families, and they have they want to send their kids to a school and all that stuff. And so it's just trying to figure that out. I mean, one of the things that we've tried to devise is you know have a we're just really early in this, but you know putting them in private practice and then and then they actually having them rotate through. Uh, we still that's in very infant stages. Yeah, I think that's a challenge a lot of mission hospitals face because they cannot pay the salary to compete with the private practice salaries. Even though we have a we have a non-private practice um, bonus type of thing, allowance kind of thing that they get paid to try to give them extra money, it still doesn't in any way compensate them. One way of looking at that is to look at yourself. You could, if you're board certified by the American Board of Surgery, you could be working in America and making a lot more money than you do, yet you're living a sacrificial lifestyle. That's sort of an example to the residents to say, you know, I'm, I'm a missionary to Kenya. Can you also consider being a missionary to Kenya, True. living a sacrificial lifestyle and, and doing what God would call you to do? True. It, it will have to be God calling them to, to do so that, too. At the, at the beginning of the interview process, it's great. Just to comment on the expectation, though, um, you, Rich, and, and, and all of us that have served, we represent about 0.1% of the American physicians that have chosen that lifestyle. So we have to remember that when we look to our Kenyan colleagues to make that choice as well, we ought to expect maybe 10 times the amount, 1% of them might achieve that lifestyle, which means that the vast majority of those that we're going to train are going to have trouble making the same commitments, and even more so because not only do they have to take care of their uh, individual family, but their whole village has been asking, you know, for where is the proceeds to help them get through their schooling and so forth. You know, the, the, the intern that I talked to one time uh, in Kajabi, you know, he had this whole family of 14 kids that his dad was expecting to yeah. pay school fees for. Well, that's... That's not exactly going to allow, you know, the same kind of sacrificial lifestyle because we have that freedom of choice from our wealth to do that. They don't have that same choice because they don't have the same perspective. So I think we have to be very careful how we place our expectations on that sacrificial lifestyle. That's true. When you're saying private practice, you mean private practice in Kenya? In Kenya. And I'm not sure why that's considered a loss of that resident into the system. I mean, as far as producing African doctors to work in Africa, that sounds like that's a success. As compared to a, a physician at your hospital, like if right. it's not, I mean, if, if you if that resident goes to private practice, and certainly if they go to an underserved area, then you still that's a win for Kenya. Right. But one of the questions was, how do you retain people at your hospital to help have physicians working at your own hospital, and that that's what. You know, that's the challenge that we continue to face. Yeah, but uh, positions, that's great. But if you don't have anybody staying, <laughs> that's the problem if you mm -hmm. want to have trainers. And I guess my only thing to respond to that one comment, I mean, as missionary physicians, we've given up a lot, although I feel like I've given more much than I've given up. But I still, you know, compared to the other physicians in Cambodia, I'm very rich mm -hmm. compared, even though I've given up, I mean, compared to my, what I had in the United States. So... It, it's, not, it's an apples and oranges. It is. It's a, it's a it is. Steve? Um, the way our hospital system gets around it is we provide all the housing, but we don't have a problem land. So we provide all the housing. We give a, our staff vehicles. We'll have drivers, and they'll 
the physicians will be able to say, okay, I want to go here, and the, the vehicle will drive. If we don't have to outlay money, we have to put an initial investment in them, and then we don't have to outlay money month to month to pay them more. We simply give them more perks. Um, we have a higher retention in the last three years than we've had previously. So at our hospital, we're currently up to 27 physicians. And so we've been able to maintain Let me introduce you. Steve Sparks is the PAX Residency Program Director at Emingo in Cameroon. And Dr. Rich Davis here. Rich, Rich is a Residency Program Director at Kajabi Hospital at, um, in Kenya. Also, so you guys be sure to talk to them as well. Done. Is anybody else? Is it is here here? Okay. So, Carol, I think I'll just, if I can, just take two minutes on uh, another specialty, the family medicine uh, program developed in Kenya and other places around Africa. Um, and just to make the, a little bit of the shades of distinction, uh, family medicine met 1995 to ask the question about who's going to replace us if we had to leave. And in Kenya, the, the answer was. Because family medicine wasn't a specialty in the country, there is no recognition for what this doctor would be. Uh, we had to choose and purposely chose to affiliate with the university system and work the long haul. It took 10 years to get family medicine established as a specialty through the accrediting board. But once it was done, we were you know, in because the university was sponsoring the program as a master of medicine degree. Uh, and that that long-haul route was required because family medicine without it wasn't going to get anywhere in the country. We couldn't even think about doing a PACS-type uh, uh, rotation because if we'd start these, uh, producing a family doctor without the credentials that are recognized you know, universally as uh, resident mm -hmm. level, um, it would just be a short shrift. It, would, there wouldn't, it wouldn't even have a chance to, to be recognized within the medical practitioners and then board that does all the accrediting. So we chose to do the university route, and Moy University has the program, and has we've graduated about eight uh, residents now, and the University of Nairobi is starting, and Kenyatta University and Aga Khan University are also looking at it. So it's a longer route, and it's still the same issue for, for us. It's the, you know, getting the Kenyan physicians uh, and interns that are looking at what specialty they want to go to consider family medicine, because it still doesn't have a name recognition within the country yet. But we're also addressing the same issues that you are, the, the disparities of, of you know, 80% of the population living rurally, but only 20% of the doctors practicing there, and the need to work complementarily with you know, the surgeons that are being produced in programs like yours so that, that these district hospitals. But one advantage we have then is that when the government sponsors their people into our residency programs from the Ministry of Health, when they come out, those family medicine uh, um, doctors now are paid as a, uh, as a specialty and the same pay scale as a surgeon or a pediatrician or an obstetrician gynecologist. So that's the one advantage that we've had sure. working through their system is that those family doctors going to a rural 100-bed hospital and being the only person to take care of surgical emergencies because there is no surgeon, um, they're trained to do those things as well. Um, they're being paid at the same level as a surgeon working in a larger hospital. So that's one way we're trying to reverse the brain drains. The government has signed on to that as one of their strategies to helping them right. with balance. And I believe that we're, we're in the infancy phases of all of this, and I, I believe that the Kenyan uh, Medical and Dental Practitioners Board sees the value. They know that their 
their doctors are asking for more slots of residency training, and they believe that we're doing a good job, and they want to find a way to, to encourage us and support us and to have this be successful. So I think that this will eventually work out and, and be successful. I'm just going to close with a couple of, of blessings. You can't quantify the blessings, but it's in the relationships, the relationships with the residents, with the other faculty, with the faculty just across the program. Several of us sat down yesterday and just kind of compared notes of what's going on, what are the struggles that you have, and, you know, it's just kind of nice to know that other people are are feeling the same pain that you're feeling, and and the visiting staff that come, and as I watch them really bond with our residents, and our residents learn so much from them, and just seeing God's hand at work, oh my goodness, it's just a, a, a very humbling experience and such an incredible experience to be a small part of something that is clearly um, God at work. And uh, there's, uh, I think about little Rosaline in Madagascar. She was one of our PACS graduates from Gabon. And she went back, and she's the only doctor. She's like this big. She's like 90 pounds and this tall. And and she's the only doctor at her whole hospital. And they were they they'd sponsored her and waited on her and awaited her return. And every once in a while, we'll get an email from her. And, and it's filled with praises to God for her training and for um, his provision. And they received her back as a trained surgeon. And she's working hard. Uh, we need to pray for her for, I think, strength and endurance. But people like her now are going back to serve where they couldn't have gone before. And so we think we're part of something really special, and we're just really thankful to be able to be a part of that. Thank you for coming today. We're happy to take any other questions.